Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto and a 50% discount on a one-year subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Nikhil Pal Singh. We spoke about the massive protests against police violence in the United States that emerged in response to the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. We talked about why the protests are so large and so diverse and the movement's demands for the abolition or defunding of the police. We also talked about the concept of racial capitalism and how the right might seek to respond to the crisis of neoliberal legitimacy by pursuing policies that would seek to shore up the economic security of white working class Americans whilst doing nothing for black America. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Nikhil Pal Singh is Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis and History at New York University and Founding Faculty Director of the NYU Prison Education Programme. A historian of race, empire and culture in the 20th century United States, Nikhil is the author most recently of Race and America's Long War. He's also the author of the award-winning Black is a Country, Race and the Unfinished Struggle for Democracy. His writing has appeared in numerous venues, including New York Magazine, Time and The New Republic. Obviously, mass protest movements don't simply emerge automatically in response to uh, particular instances of, uh, of injustice. After all, police violence against black Americans is, is pretty routine, uh, typically doesn't have very uh, visible political repercussions. Why do you think the protests that arose in response to the murder of George Floyd have been on such a large scale and with such geographical spread across the United States? I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a question that we probably could explore in quite a quite a wide ranging way because it's obviously a historical. There's a historical answer to this, you know, which is that just as you said, this has been going on for a long time, um, and we've had very very significant protests around police violence in the United States in recent years. So, I mean, the the, the the, the Ferguson protests of 2014 were, were very, very significant. And of course, the, 
the the launching of of you know what we now call Black Lives Matter as a kind of um, a kind of viral movement uh, online and kind of in the streets um, was in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin. You know, even before that, uh, by by a white vigilante, George Zimmerman. So, so there, there's been a, a, a strong awareness of issues of police violence. Uh, racially targeted police violence in the United States across the country for at least, I would say, the last 10 years or so, or almost 10 years. Um, so I think, I think that that's part of it. I, I would slightly modify your, your, your initial opening only to say that it, it has been a, a routine feature of American policing, but I don't think it's ever been a feature of American policing that has not occasioned um, fierce responses at the community level, not necessarily at the national level or mm. across the, yeah. the country, but fierce responses. I mean, I mean, American policing, particularly of uh, segregated, racially segregated urban parts of the city, has been at the core of almost every urban uprising since the 1960s. I mean, the Watts riot was in 1965 was started by a police encounter. The Harlem riot before that was started by a police encounter. Um, the, the, the riots across American cities in the 1960s, of course, were, were, were a mixture of things because they came out of, again, a period of protest and the, the largest waves of riots came after the, the murder of Dr. King. But again, it was an, an, an instance of, 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 uh, black death in a sense, uh, right at the hands of, of, um, of kind of racist and reactionary forces that occasioned those kinds of responses. Of course, we had the 1992 riots in Los Angeles, which was uh, occasioned by the police beating of the black motorist Rodney King, um, and so on and so on. And in New York City, I think um, there's a there's a there's a strong local memory of regular moments of police murder. And I lived in New York on and off since the 1990s, but in the 1990s there was the the very f famous killing of uh, Amadou Diallo, um, and also the police torture of uh, Abner Louima. Um, and both of those events um, occasioned really significant um, rounds of protest. So, you know, I think we, we are talking about something that, that has a long history uh, where there is a, a quite a widespread awareness um, and where people are, are really, really um, angry and, and fed up that it keeps happening. I think the, the, the ways these in incidences and events are now recorded um, and then can be widely viewed, and the, the killing of George Floyd was, was, was shockingly egregious. Not that other police killings haven't been shockingly egregious, but there was something about that killing that I think... Um, really really struck a nerve with the sort of the sort of casualness of the um you know the 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 knee on the neck and 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 the policeman even has his hand in his pocket you know which which suggests that he's not feeling any any real stress there's a lot in the in the tableau of that event that really uh signals in all of these ways just how uh it, unaccountable po the police are and how cheap uh, the life of someone like George Floyd is in their eyes. And I think, you know, that, that struck a nerve. So I think, I think we have to think about that whole history of racialized police violence in the United States, um, and how, how deeply impactful that is and how in some ways that's coming to a head. Um, I think the second, 
enormous factor, of course, is the, is the pandemic and the coronavirus and the fact that we've all been inside for months um, and the fact that there are many, many people who are out of work. Um, some are receiving um, government employment benefits um, and kids are out of school and out of college and out of university. Um, and there's a huge, huge uh, representation of the young in these movements, right? So I think, I think there's something about that dynamic that is obviously also, um, you know, part of what's kind of being unleashed here. Mm. Um, and we're also and, in... And sorry, yeah. Nikhil, just, just regarding that, I mean, w- would part of that be a, a kind of intensification of the erosion of faith in the future amongst younger cohorts about the possibility of, you know, personal advancement within the system seems even more implausible in, in the context of, of the pandemic? I think you're absolutely right, and that, that's, that sort of leads to exactly what I was going to say about the kind of third, the third sort of, sort of piece of, of, of context that we would want to take into account, which was, you know, we're in, we're in the midst of an electoral season. The left candidate, Bernie Sanders, who had a lot of popular support, especially among the young, you know, was really just defeated after a lot of hope had been put into his candidacy. Um, you know, we're, we're facing a very strange election between you know, a very, a very terrible and reactionary president, um, and then a, a challenger who also represents, um, you know, strong elements within the status quo. So neither of them inspire, I think, uh, the, the kind of hopes that many of us have. Uh, I would say mass hopes now uh, to really transform our society, to make it more attentive and responsive to the, you know, the basic healthcare and social welfare and economic needs of the population, right? And and so I think that that has that has really shifted in the United States. We we're having a conversation in the United States, which may seem strange to the to your listeners in Britain, um, of course, or in Europe, uh, about the possibility that Americans should have government guaranteed universal health care, which we do not have in this country. Um, even to have that conversation on the table was a real breakthrough, and it kind of indicated, uh, not that we've gotten it or that we will get it, but it indicated just how the country is moving in many ways, especially young people, to the left. You know, and so I think that also is, you know, a piece of this moment. And, you know, they all have really, they really, I guess, come together in a, in a bit of a, you know, in a bit of a perfect synergy, uh, for better and for worse. I mean, there are things to be very worried about in this moment. Um, you know, not only in terms of what the, what the reaction will be, but also in terms of the, the pandemic itself, which is still going on and, and is not necessarily going to be, you know, is, is, is potentially going to be worsened, um, under these, uh, these conditions of the last several weeks of, of people being outside and protesting. So I don't think we can be Pollyannish about that or should, or should be, but, but, but at the same time, I, I do think, um, you know, it's, it's a remarkable moment it's seeing this level of popular initiative across the country in so many cities with these kinds of numbers and not just cities, but also small towns. In terms of the popular desire for more radical solutions to to the problems that, that that so many Americans face, how do you square the 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 militancy and 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 the widespread nature of the protests uh, with the fact of, of Bernie Sanders' defeat? Well, I mean, a lot was put into the idea um, that we could mount a successful social movement through electoral politics and. 
that there could be almost a a a a victory at the top that could galvanize a kind of a kind of change from top to bottom with 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 you know actually winning the American executive branch for a democratic socialist which i mean the very idea seems ludicrous on its face when you think of our uh, the last 40 years or even the last 70 years of of the United States history in in other words the post new deal history uh and especially the history since the Reagan era where the country has really moved further and further to the right in many ways i think the obama administration we could we could talk about because i think that was a moment when when a certain opening seemed to be apparent that then was closed down but i think bernie really represented something that was quite thought to be quite off the political spectrum and and so a lot of hopes were put in the the possibility that he could win the nomination you know and i think when he didn't win the nomination and when he was so in some ways quite easily crushed by the democratic establishment which really coalesced against him in many ways mm, um, and not even with a strong candidate exactly not with a strong candidate not with a strong a candidate that has a lot of popular enthusiasm in fact not even clearly the choice of the party initially um although certainly someone who had a lot of seniority within the party and a lot of resources within the party so so i think uh, i think the you know the the the, the dynamic of sort of returning to the streets you know is is perhaps part of that too and and you know many of us who are older have 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 thought that you know we need we need to cultivate dual you know dual power we need we need social movements and we need strength inside the institutions of government and for for too long i think we we have we have in some ways neglected the formal political arena on the left i mean i i don't know if you would say the same thing is true in britain but certainly or the corbin upsurge and then the corbin defeat has a somewhat of a similar character of trying to trying to bring together you know m- movement based forces in civil society who are you know centered in 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 smaller groups and organizations and around different kinds of issues that are trying to articulate with an effort to to make inroads into the sort of centers of institutional power and authority in the government you know and i i think that 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 dual process has to continue but i think for a lot of young people i mean I, i'm not sure how many of the young people out in the street are going to actually turn out to vote for joe biden i i don't think it's a a foregone conclusion uh that trump is going to lose i mean i think it's quite likely that trump is going to lose uh if you ask me my opinion but i don't think by any means it's 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 a certainty um but 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 in in another sense there's a there's clearly a, a level of popular um popular militancy in the United States that we haven't seen in a long time and that and that's really been developing again like i said over over a decade really you go back to the occupy movement um and then black lives matter and even the large immigrant marches that happened before um uh before the occupy movement um and even going back to the enormous marches against the iraq war in 2003 i mean we've we've been a society in tremendous turmoil really for two decades and i would say there's a you know we're 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 kind of waiting to to sort of break through to a new kind of settlement uh and i think we just hope that that settlement can be one that 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 takes us towards you know a more humane future rather than you know the opposite which which is you know obviously quite 
quite scary and also possible, you know, that, that the settlement could be very, very repressive in the form that it ends up taking. Uh, but, 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 but my point basically is, is that things have been tremendously unsettled for a long time for those of us who have been involved and really, you know, marching and, and, and protesting against the sort of deepening polarization and, and immiseration and inequalities and violence within our society since the, you know, the WTO protests in Seattle in the late 1990s, protest, protest, protest. And I think a lot of people are sick of protest because protest hasn't necessarily brought us the kind of changes we want. Um, on the other hand, nor has electoral politics. So, so where do we, you know, where do we get the traction that we need? Um, I think w- our theories of change are very, uh, are very challenged right now. Uh, but I think also, we have a kind of impetus that we haven't had uh, really in a long time. Um, so, so that's a hopeful, a hopeful thing. Regarding the makeup of the Black Lives Matter movement and comparing it with earlier moments of protest, and in particular the, um, the LA riots, which you, which you mentioned of 1992, a, a lot of people are talking about the uh, quite impressive diversity of, of the movement now and I think, I think in the popular imagination, 1992, the the LA riots is, is very much seen as as, as a as a riot in and of the black community. I think it's not typically seen as as, as part of a you know a movement that had a broader base. Is that your impression too? And and if that is the case, why do you think there has been this broadening out? I mean, I think it's true that the LA riot was a riot in and of and centered on the black community in Los Angeles. Although I would say. There was some important writing at the time which suggested just how multiracial that riot was too, in terms of the, the, the communities that were, that were brought into the, 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 um, the, the struggles that were happening in the streets, um, around, around the Rodney King, um, beating, uh, including especially, you know, Latinos in, in, in LA and, and recent immigrants and, and other groups. Uh, I think there was an essay by, by the historian Peter Kwong, where he called it the first multicultural riot. Um, and, and it, it's quite an interesting perspective to revisit. Um, so I think, I think we may, we may, if we went back into really rethinking that riot, look at it a little bit differently. But there's no, no, uh, there's, there's no, in no uncertain terms, what you're saying is true, that this has a very different character. Um, first of all, these are protests that are being sustained over a long period of time. They have aspects of kind of insurrectionary activity, of, of, of looting, of, of burning buildings, and, and, and the things that we associate with riots. But they also obviously have this, this tremendous um, kind of massing of sort of um, popular protest movements in the, in the traditions of the civil rights movement. And they're all across the country, uh, and they're cross-racial, cross-ethnic groups and cross-class in many ways as well, because there's certainly uh, plenty of, of middle-class professionals out there uh, uh, rioting, or, but also marching. Um, and so I do think there's a, there's a quality of this that, that you, you can't frame it as a sort of a sectoral movement, as a movement of a, of a minority or of a, of a particular group, even if it is a movement that is clearly uh, responding to the violence that is disproportionately raining down upon uh, the urban poor and the urban black poor in particular. So I think that that is a very extraordinary thing about this, that, that something has happened to really break through to a, um, to a wider public that is demanding uh, change, 
and it's demanding different kinds of change. Maybe the demands are sometimes too inchoate or unclear. Um, clearly, one set of demands is very, very focused on the problem of policing and the fact that we've become over-policed, over-incarcerated, and we've become a society that's much, much too committed to um, violent means as a way of addressing uh, social policy, really, right? And I think if we can broaden that aspect of it and really initiate a, a, a change in the way in which we think about what kind of social state this is, um, and and really begin to not only shrink the police, but but in my view, shrink the military, shrink the the, the American commitment to 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 violence as an instrument of policy. You know, we will be doing something incredible for this country, but also for the world at large. Um, and you know that again, much like the idea of universal health care hasn't really seemed to be something that was on the agenda before, but now it is. Yes. Well, I mean, j- just yesterday we had the um, the reports that the uh, city council of Minneapolis intends to disband the city's police department and, and replace it with some kind of alternative system of public safety. Clearly, it's too soon to know if that might actually happen. And the council will presumably come under tremendous pressure not to not to go ahead. And, and the mayor of the city, Jacob Frey, has not supported the idea. But what's your sense of how popular such me- measures would be? Uh, because I think, I, I imagine some uh, liberal commentators who are broadly in sympathy with the Black Lives Matter movement would assume that this is the kind of measure which is, you know, is going to scare away middle class voters and, and that, you know, doesn't really doesn't fly. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I think we we obviously have um, a a very challenging environment in terms of coalescing an effective left politics, um, and I don't want to you know be the one to police the boundaries of what the discussion can be. But the abolish side of it, the kind of maximalist demand, is not necessarily the demand that has popular resonance. And it's not necessarily the demand that is going to be enacted through various kinds of reform. Um, the problem with reform, however, is, is that reforms have so often not worked. You know, body cameras, bias training, all the kinds of things that we talk about under the headings of community policing, all of this has been part of the repertoire of reforming the police. So there's a reason why the maximalist demand of abolish the police takes on the kind of resonance it does among militants within the movement. Um, How we square this, how we bring this together into something that's effective and that can be a winning political um, moment for us, you know, I think is an open question. Um, I, I, I do think that when we talk about what we mean by civil authority and what kind of civil authority we mean, you know, we need, we need to be able to talk about it in more concrete ways. Um, one kind of middle ground position between the sort of abolish and the, the police reform position has been the call to defund the police, you know, in, in a sense to shrink the role of the police, to, to really think about how police roles have been, you know, expanded to deal with all kinds of things that they're not suitable for, like mental health issues, homelessness issues, domestic violence issues, everywhere the police get involved, which in many ways not only don't address those issues, but in some sense exacerbate their tendencies to to sort of 
devolve into for, into encounters that that foreground force and violence and arrests and so on. Um, so I think I think there's an agreement probably among the the sort of the liberal reformers and the uh, and the and the and the militant abolishers that there there needs to be some profound and and structural transformation of the way in which the police operate. But the devil will always be in the details, you know, and I think the obstacles that we're up against in trying to reform the police are enormous. The power of police unions, the various stakeholders in police action, uh, the ways in which the society has become deeply dependent on police as a bulwark of its own deeply, profoundly unequal organization of race, space, property, wealth, employment. So the, the police are not the issue. The issue is the, you know, the systemic ordering of inequality in American life, and not just American life, but in other parts of the world as well, where the police really are the face of the most kind of, the most kind of revanchist and repressive aspects of the propertied order. You know, and I think we've, we've known this for a long time, you know, but until we, can, until we can really think about how we begin to address those questions, you know, it's going to be a very challenging thing to change, right? Um, so I know that's a, you know, that's maybe an answer that some people are going to find unsatisfying. But you know, we're here to have try to have a discussion of of what to do of what to do next. So I think starting with defunding the police, starting with thinking about um, some redistribution of of municipal resources to really think about what it would mean to strengthen. Um, governing capacities that really serve the needs of people in cities. I mean, there are some municipalities in the United States, if you look at their budget, it's almost all policing, you know? Um, Now, the problem with defunding the police, of course, is we're going to now face a period in the next um, several months and years where municipalities are going to be hit with a fiscal crisis because of the the, the, the economic squeeze that we're going to face as a result of the, not just the coronavirus, but the very economy that we had going into the coronavirus. So, you know, defunding the police might also be part of defunding everything. And if we're defunding everything, you know, then we're going to have all the kinds of problems that, um, that we need to address, you know, tenfold, uh, in terms of, uh, homelessness, in terms of, crimes against property, you know, in terms of um, uh, people, people feeling, you know, the kind of, kind of public anxiety and stress that lead to violent conflict. So I think that, you know, we, we, we're facing some big challenges. And, you know, I think that is what scares liberals, which is that they think uh, liberals who may otherwise be on board with, um, with reforming the police and, and certainly on board with the idea that Police, the kinds of police killings that we've seen of the kind that resulted in the death of George Floyd are entirely egregious. They really worry that, you know, there will be another period of, of a kind of backlash, uh, in American society that, that doubles down on law and order. We've had 40 years of law and order in the United States, which have produced the kind of situation we have now. Um, and if, 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 if that gets doubled down on, you know, then, you know, it's going to be a terrible, a terrible uh, outcome of this. So, so I think there's, you know, I don't think that's what's going to happen, but I think there's a, a reasonable concern, uh, because certainly, 
um, those forces that are deeply invested in law and order and who have learned to criminalize social problems as a kind of as a kind of popular vernacular, as a way of, as Stuart Hall once put it, you know, tutoring publics in authoritarian reflexes. I mean, those are still very uh, very central to the kind of the political culture we are in. You know, they haven't vanished just because we see people protesting in the streets and the numbers that they are. Uh, I'm not. I'm not convinced yet. We have we have won the popular argument here. So I think we should be careful in getting too far ahead of ourselves, um, and 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 you know think think strategically and think clearly about what what we're going to be facing after this this wave of protest subsides, and especially as we go into this election. Presumably, a part of what's going on with with some people who, who as you say, are are frightened by by notions of abolishing the police is, uh, I suppose, certainly older cohorts may have memories of, of the nineteen sixties and and the protests of, of that period, terminated in the the Nixon presidency and then uh, mass incarceration and and so on. Um, exactly, exactly. So, um, one of the terms that you've used in your work is um, is the term racial capitalism. C- could you explain what the term denotes, and, and also where you stand on the question of whether it's plausible to imagine a capitalism without racism, whether in the abstract or as a possible future trajectory, uh, in particular in the United States? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a deeply uh, this kind of deeply kind of ramified term that has a history in kind of scholarly literature, but now has kind of taken on more kind of wide usage. And oftentimes the wide usage is fairly casual. It's really about saying that we have problems of racism and we have problems of economic inequality. And how do we assess their relationship? How do we think of the ways they're braided? Um, and you know, there's a there's quite a, a a long debate about this, right? And there's quite a division about this in many ways on the left, especially between those who really want to to argue that you know we should we should really look at most things through the lens of racial disparity as the kind of primary concern, and those who say no, almost all problems related to racial disparity are actually b- more broadly problems of of class inequality and, and, and material deprivation and so forth. And I think, you know, racial capitalism, I think, in the, in, as a heuristic for me, is a way to try to think better about how we bring these kinds of arguments together in a way that doesn't break down along those lines, along the lines which basically says, um, no, we must talk about racial disparity and racially specific remedies to that disparity first and foremost, um, and arguments that say, no, we actually must be be kind of ecumenical and perhaps even race-blind in the way in which we think about economic inequality that may have these unfortunate disproportionate effects. Um, my, my view would be really that racism and capitalism have been um, deeply embroidered, um, and they've been embroidered in ways that have created divisions within and across working class populations, you know, that have structured divisions according to racialized uh, labor and according to various kinds of status differences among working people. I mean, the famous formulation, again, to go back to Stuart Hall's work that your listeners, many of them will be familiar with, you know, was that that famous line from Policing the Crisis in 1978, where he says, you know, race is the modality in which class is lived. 
And I think, you know, that was an effort not to privilege race over class, but actually to think about why it's actually so difficult to demystify the racial forms that actually divide the working class, you know, and that divide the not not just not just in the in the imaginary or in the imagination or as an ideological kind of effect, but but actually in the lived experience of where people get located, the kind of housing they have, how they get spatially um, uh, separated within urban areas, uh, the kinds of jobs they have access to, the disproportionate rates of employment and unemployment across different groups. In other words, the kind of segmentation of labor, the racial segmentation of labor. You know, the, these questions, not just labor, but the segmentation between the, 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 the unemployed and the working, you know, uh, the, these kinds of divisions which have had a racialized character, um, and the racialized character that has divided working people in the United States clearly goes back to slavery, right? Um, and has a long trajectory through the history of the United States. I mean, this is something that I would say you can't really pull out of the history of American capitalism. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.